It's good to be together in God's house in the year of our Lord, 2024. Would you please stand with me as we read from the Word? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 to 13 reads, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you say, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The word of God. Please be seated. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Take one quick moment, turn to someone and say, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Have you made any New Year's resolutions yet? Has anyone come up to you and asked the fateful question, what are your goals in the new year? Have you been forced to think about it? Run a marathon? The good old classic, lose some weight, get in shape. Maybe you're creative this year, eat more sugar. What? I don't know. <laughs> Just before Christmas break, I spoke with my academic life coach, brilliant young lady, and she had mentioned to me that um, as, as much as humans love progress and change and transformation stories, that maybe in this new year, as I'm sharing with, with her all of my angst and all the things that uh, I'm, I'm working through and, and all this stuff, she, she just she quiets me down and she says, maybe uh, in the new year we should not have a goal to change so much as we should have a goal to find what's already been good and nurture that. Oh, now that's some wisdom. I've never really been one to make uh, New Year's resolutions and goals. I just don't like them. It's never been my thing, even when I was young. And I, and I, I just, there's something about preaching about the new year and our new goals, you know? You preach and you fire people up on that first Sabbath, and then on a second Sabbath, you have to console them for all the, for all the, the stuff they didn't able to do. You know, it's that January 1, hey, man, this is what I'm going to do. And January's like, yes, go for it. And then January 6th is like, surprise, surprise. Not today. Empty promises and failed resolutions. So maybe this year we think about 2024 what good things can we nurture? Can we continue to nurture and grow in us? What good things of 2023 has come through for you and you can really lean into? Maybe obvious ones, maybe the ones that aren't so obvious that you have to consider and think through and process and wrestle with. But what are those good things that you and I can nurture? And as we consider these things, 
What about the church? What good things can we nurture about the church in 2024? Well, I want to invite you. We can start this way. I want to invite you to do a, a, an exercise with me this morning. It won't take a lot. So you can join me if you're online. You can, you can join us as well. I'll give you the instructions. Uh, I would like for, to invite you to, to take your hands like this and just put them up. Yeah, open them wide. Open them wide. And then we're going to clasp our hands together with our fingers first. So we're going to clasp them both. All the fingers are going to go down. Okay. Then we're going to close it. Knuckles up. And then we're going to take our index finger and protrude it towards the ceiling and or to forward. And inside those, you should have your thumbs parallel inside of your index fingers. Hold that for a second and breathe. And now I want you to take your thumbs and open them outside like this. Look inside and then wiggle your fingers. Do you remember this? This little riddle, this little, this little children's riddle, riddle we used to have, right? Here's the church. Here's the, open the doors. See the people. See the people. There, there's something just brilliantly simple and profound about this little riddle. And I don't think that, that as adults, we've taken the time to consider it. Just, just how simple and yet how profound this is. That, that we start by looking at the architectural design of what seems like uh, a, a church, but then you peel it back, and, and when you peel the shell back, there beneath you actually find what church is. It isn't the design, the, the beautiful stained and the beautiful tower steeple or the doors that are, are made by, by craftsmen around the world. When you peel those things back, you see what church really is. It's the people. And that's beautiful. That's deep. I think that that speaks volumes about who and what we are supposed to be. It's the, for God so loved the world, the, the cosmos, and the primary cosmos there is people. For God so loved the people. It's that, that moment when, when Jesus says, uh, go into all the world and make disciples of, of people, of people. Ah, the depth and the breadth and the beauty of what it means to be a church. It actually means to be a people. It means to be a gathering. It means to be a, an, an uprising, a, 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 a group that comes out forth and, and, and does something wonderfully beautiful together. Brene Brown points out that through her time uh, moving through her journey in social work, she finds that uh, connection is why we are here. We are hardwired to connect with others. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. And without it, there's suffering. Norman Wurzba, in his book, would put it this way. He would say, to learn the ways of love, you also have to learn the ways of communal life. Communal life. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, 
also highly uh, believes in the communion of Christ's followers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, a Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's words into him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he can help himself without belying the truth. People, the church. If you'd ask the evangelist in the book of 1 John chapter 4, he would pen it this way. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Oh, the church, beyond the steeple, past the doors, lies the truth about the gathering. God has brought us and called us. Church has always been about people. In this New Year's series, we'll spend time pouring over Paul's uh, existing pastoral letters, his two existing pastoral letters to his people in Corinth. It's a deeply personal letter. It's emotional for Paul. It's pastoral. It's not, it's not systematic theology. It's, it's him pouring over the people and their ecclesial issues. He's, he's wanting them to continue being the people of God, not losing their way, but having a deeper entrenched relationship with each other and with God. This is nothing new for Paul. This is a part of who Paul is. It's in his writings, whether it's in Corinthians or he's talking to Ephesus or he's writing out to Philippi, but he's constantly appealing to the people in the name of Jesus Christ, their Lord, to be in this agreement, to be together, to be united, not, not, not unification, but uh, united, right? To be united together. This is not only true here in the book of Corinthians, as we just read, but also as we peer across his writings to the, Phil- to the Philippians. <clears throat> if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion, any sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard one another better than yourselves. Be united. This is Paul's great task for Gentiles and for Jews as he's growing the church in all fantastic, wonderful, miraculous kinds of ways. There are all kinds of people that are becoming a part of this rooted family of God. He does this uh, when he sends the letter to Ephesus. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One God, one Father, one baptism, one people. I know the desire of the Lord's heart when he sees his children And how he would love his children to be one people. To not be distracted by by preferences and differences. But to draw closer together. Be closer knit. Any parent knows the heart of the Lord. Who has more than one child in their home. Parents, amen. 
When you want your children to play together with joy and love and sharing, so you give them things and those things become the things they fight over. Becomes the thing that brings, brings chaos into your house and you end up yelling with the righteous indignation, stop it. If you can't play nicely, you can't what? Play, oh, you all understand the Lord's heart. So what Paul is leaning into, to be a people who faces the cross and who walks together. He does this in the very, the very first, earliest letter for the New Testament, for, for Galatia. When he writes to Galatia, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor their male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so he's straightening out those who believe that they should have the rights to be distinguished from others. No, we are all one in Jesus. Such a beautiful idea. It's such a beautiful idea because at any point, uh, the free would have a better time hanging out with the free. And the slaves who were going through things probably would have rather hung out with those who were slaves because they understood each other's pains. And, and the male would like to hang out with the males because in the Roman family code, the male was the head. And he would probably want to hang out with the heads of family household codes. Masters would want to hang out with masters. Slaves would want to hang out with slaves. If it were up to us, and let's be honest, as human beings, we'd all rather just hang out with people that are much like us. And so Paul here believes that diversity and church unity are both parts of what God wants the most. God wants this deeply. God believes in it. When we think about that we were made in God's image, that means each Wonderful human being, shimmering gem, is an image of God. And Paul believes in this deeply. Paul believes that each and every one is made in the image of God. He also believes that the community of believers, that the church should be that diverse should be that glorious that when they come there, you would see a slave and a free and a male and a female, the Jew and the Gentile in one place where you would never see them outside in the empire. Paul's resonated with God's words. Paul knew that it could be accomplished, but that it would take a keen eye it would take unrelenting passion for people and for others. It would take an otherness that looks at the other before looking at the self. Paul knew this. He writes in verse 12, what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is rhetorical. Paul knows exactly where he stands and where they should be at. 
for the context here. Paul is writing to Corinth. Corinth was a great city. And in 146 BCE, they were sacked. It was a Grecian metropolis. It was quite the, the area of affluence, but it was sacked by Rome. And so Rome demolished Corinth. There was no city left. There were no people to gather. It was just demolished. And it laid flat for about a century. And then Julius Caesar comes along. And Julius Caesar in 46 BCE rebuilds this great port city. And now the port city is back and it's, and it's alive. And because of, its, because of its, its strategic location, it is, it is the trade center for all places. If you're moving down from the north, you want to go through that way. And, and then they had rolling systems to move the boats across about three miles of land before they could sail the other way. Otherwise, they'd have to sail 500 miles around. around. So, so Corinth was this major hub. So when, they, when, when Julius Caesar put it back into play, people started moving in and it started flourishing and wealth quickly began to amass in this area. People became wealthy. Now, just a few miles north of there was Athens. Athens is like the Oxford of today. It's like the Harvard. It's like the Yale. It's, it's where philosophy is done well. It's where intellect is deep. This is where you would go to get the best of the best of, of Sophie, of wisdom, of true wisdom. And, and that is the Greek and the Roman way. And so as this, this, this uh, port city, this metropolis, busy and pumping and full of life begins to grow, well, guess what? They want to be able to have the same kind of, uh, of strong intellect. They want to be known for wisdom and goodness. And so when people, teachers and philosophers and what they would call sophites, who were wise teachers, would come down into the area, the town would show up. And they would be there to listen to this, to this wisdom that had been put together. And they would soak it in. And then these sophites who would come to town, they would, they would speak beautifully. And, and, and they, would, they would share in such wonderful ways. And, then, and they would love to create pockets of disciples wherever they went. So when they went to Corinth, guess what? A particular sophite would have a, a, a group of disciples. And another teacher would come in or another philosopher. And they would begin to have t uh, 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 pupils and disciples. And then these disciples would begin to argue. And they would begin to hash things out. And they'd get angry and they'd fight and they'd debate. And so the culture of, of the, the church of Corinth was it was sitting in a place where wisdom would come in from wonderful places and they would create disciples who would begin to bicker and fight and, 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 and just uh, go at it with each other. So when Paul hears from Chloe that they're starting in the church to say, hey, I'm a follower of, of, of Paul and I'm a follower of Apollos. And Apollos from the book of Acts, Apollos comes from Alexandria, which is another great wisdom uh, uh, epicenter. So, you know, Apollos was known for being very uh, intellectual, beautiful, just, you know, just a great orator. And, and Paul was not known for this. Paul was known for, for writing well, but, but his, his preaching style wasn't the best. 
But Apollos' was clean and polished and beautiful. And so there were some that were saying, I follow Paul. And some say, I follow Apollos. And some say, I follow Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic for for Peter. And so uh, this is Peter. Peter would represent the group who were traditional. Peter led more of the the Jewish Messianic group who followed Jesus from from, uh, uh, deep Jewish traditions. So you have the ones that follow Paul. Paul is, is, is the one who started it all. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone in church say, oh man, I remember the good old days. These would be those who follow Paul. You remember when so-and-so was here. Oh man, when so-and-so was here, the place would pack out. Oh man, when so-and-so was leading us, we, we had such great mission and such great, this is, if we could just go back to that place. Apollos is more of a smooth intellectual style, very modern and contemporary to his people. And Peter would be more of those who are, we just need to, to do more of the traditional things. We need to follow circumcision and the clean eating rules. And these are the ways to salvation. What Paul recognized here, according to N.T. Wright, was that the Sophites who enjoyed making disciples of their own, their followers would quarrel and they would scrap amongst each other. So that the wisdom teachers was a large influence on the church of Corinth. Sophie's was highly desired. And it had trickled into the people of Corinth. You see, while the, the people of Corinth were supposed to be the light that shined a different way, they started to follow the larger cultural context. Right believes that the Corinth, N.T. Wright believes that the Corinth cultural influence seeped into the church and spurred on the divisions between the people, between the groups, between the groups that followed Paul and Cephas and Apollos and the ones who claimed Christ himself. The church wouldn't have been like this, but around them, they see what happens in the world and, and it seemed like that to their eyes that maybe the way of the world was the right way to do this. And so maybe we need to start taking sides and, and, and holding up um, our people who we, who we listen to and, and start arguing and start fighting. And Paul wants to reclaim the church back to that which breaks the chain of the larger culture. Paul longs for Corinth to not get distracted by what is happening externally, but to rise up and show a better way forward, to rise up and show that indeed in the Christus, in the Christ Jesus, we can be in one people. We read it earlier. If you had read along prior to showing up this morning, But in verse 20 of the same chapter, Paul writes this from Corinthians. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. 
Paul is speaking to a very contemporary issue here of sophites, of sophie, the Greek word for wisdom. Sophia is where we get that name from. He says, where are these very intellectual teachers, these philosophers? Where are these scribes? Where are these debaters of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because to the world, differentiation is important. To the empire, hierarchy, status, social status. You saw it everywhere in Rome. When you were out in the Roman Agora, when, when you would be on, uh, when you'd see the slave ships and, and who were on the bottom and who were on the top. When you went into Roman homes and you saw the, the family code of who gets to be uh, the head and, and so on and so forth. You saw it all over the empire. But the church was the one place that the empire was snapped. That the, the regime of the empire could no longer have control. In the church, there was no hierarchy of status. And Paul wanted to call the church back to that place. That regardless of our racial differences, our cultural differences, our, our social status, that in Jesus we are all one. You don't have to be Tongan. To get to hang out with me. Surprise, surprise. And I don't have to be you. To be with you. For it is not because of you. Or because of me. But because of Jesus. That we might be together. Oh. We are one. In Christ. Celebrating our diversity. Celebrating our stories, celebrating places that we come from. In 2024, if you ask me, Pastor, what is our, what is our church vision? It's not going to be about the building or the property, although this place is magnificent. It's going to be about the people. It's going to be how can we nurture a, a growth between us? How can we continue to nurture and strengthen our relationships? How can we care and celebrate each other? How can we take extra care to be intentional, to watch after nurture that Christ beacon that happens in our living? That we watch after each other as siblings, all made in the image of God, that our kinship stays strong, that our love doth not veer, that our resolve to be generous and good and being together does not fail. I was in the back, I wasn't gonna tell you this story, but I was in the back doing foot washing. My family loves foot washing. It's been a part of our, our experience, our tradition for since even before the kids, my wife and I would do it and then our kids came along. We did so. so we went back there and my daughter's doing foot washing with my, my wife and my son and I are doing foot washing. And I said, son, uh, you want me to wash your foot first or you wanna wash my foot? And he says, uh, dad, you go ahead and wash my feet. I said, all right. So I got down on my knees and 
washing his feet. And I said, do you know why we do this? And he's like, well, you know, like, uh, no. And so I'm telling him the story of Jesus in the book of John with the disciples and why this is an important practice for, for humility and, and to remind us that we're never too good to serve each other, to care for each other, that, that neither he nor I are above each other. But in this place, at home, I'm above him completely. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to, at home, I am the man. But here at church, in this place, this sacred moment, while I'm at his feet, I am not above him, nor he I, but we are together in Christ. And he's thinking about this, and we're talking, and I'm washing his feet, and I dry his feet, and then I put my hands on him, and I, and I say, son, son, can I pray for you? And he says, yes, dad. And so I prayed over him. Such a beautiful, I just love these moments. And, and then I said, okay, it's my turn. He says, okay, dad, take your shoes off. And I took my shoes off, and you know, my shoes like the size of his torso, and if I pull off his socks, and he's washing my feet, and I continue to tell him the story of the gospel and how important it is that we do this to remind us that we are all the same, that he, even in our diversity, we can care for each other. And, and, and at the end of that, I looked at my son and I said, babe, what have you learned today? And he looks me in my eyes and he says, dad, your feet stink. <laughs> That's what you took from our time together? Doesn't miss a beat. And he says, stands up and he says, Dad, can I pray for you? Can I tell you something? There is nothing more beautiful than to have your child said, your feet are putrid. And I'm glad that I got to serve you. Foot washing isn't about you getting your feet right so you can come here so people can be impressed by them. That's not what Jesus was going through when he washed those feet. Somebody say amen. Foot washing is about getting down and serving someone and even when you are offended because their feet aren't like your feet, you continue to serve anyways. Church is not about us just leaving when we get offended. When something doesn't fill us the way we want it to fill us. Church is about showing up and then when something is, 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 is not sitting well in our soul, we continue to be a part of the community. We continue to serve. We continue to love. We continue to pray for each other. And in that place, God is with us. So what a wonderful way today to start our new years, but in communion, in the sharing of bread, in the sharing of the blood of Jesus, to remember that we are all one in Christ.